You may be seated. I just want to thank the team of Phil and Sophie and the others that also lead worship on a, every Sunday faithfully, leading us to the throne in worship. So I want to thank the AV team and all that they do and helping us out, supporting us and giving us the content that we have on, on the internet. It's been a wonderful uh, ministry in this church. Well, good morning and welcome to Grace Bible Church. Um, one thing that's been impressed upon me this week is that death, death is our enemy. As Christians, we know that Christ Jesus defeated death when he victoriously rose from the grave. Therefore, death is actually a defeated foe. Because of what Christ has done, death is swallowed up in victory and no longer has any sting. When we die as Christians and in Christ Jesus, we're immediately taken to be in the presence of the Lord. Being with, being with Him, as you know, is a much better place for us. But those who, who remain, those of us who remain are, remain are left to mourn the loss of our friends and loved ones, such as life in this fallen world, the world that we know is under the power of Satan until the time of Christ's coming again. He has, Satan that is, has set up his kingdom here. And God still rules from his eternal throne, right? He still rules over all, yet he has ordained that Satan would have a fleeting rule on earth. And he's done so for his glory and to make known his glorious attributes to the rulers and authorities in heaven, the heavenly places. So we're a part of this cosmic battle. As you probably have heard, I, I think Bill mentioned it earlier, COVID is making a resurgence here in Florida. Cases from the so-called Delta variant have been on the rise, as I think Phil brought up. Our daughter's basketball and volleyball coach from last year died from COVID pneumonia this past week. It's part of the reason why it's made me contemplate death even more. He left a wife and four kids. He was a youth, local youth pastor who had invested his life to love young people and to lead them to Christ. And I'm convinced that this man is with the Lord right now. I'm convinced of that. We know of one other person who is also very sick from COVID, though we hope that he will make a recovery. As you know, COVID has been a political hot potato. Talk of vaccines and masks dominate the airwaves. And now I have no intention of wading into that debate, as you know. But I do have thoughts. As Christians, we should be concerned with loving our neighbors. As Christians, we need to do everything in love. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us whether we should wear masks or get vaccinated. It doesn't tell us that. But it does tell us that we should work. And we should provide for our family and, and help others by working. And it is through that increased, increasing efficiency of work that humans subdue the earth least in this age. In the comfort of our country, in this country of America, we've largely forgotten that most people who have lived have endured immense suffering, so that when we see suffering now, we struggle with it here in this country. Because of this, we take for granted that work has allowed us to fight back the forces of this fallen world. Therefore, I believe we should stand against anything that destroys our ability to work. The Bible also commands us to worship with other believers. When we physically gather, we're better able to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. When we assemble as Christians, uh, we encourage one another. Now, it's my opinion that there are three huge travesties in how this COVID situation is being handled around the world. One is locking down the economies. I think it's a travesty. Because we need to work. Man needs to work. Shutting down churches. I think that's, it's, it's a travesty. And encouraging, and a third one, encouraging divisiveness by focusing our response on masks and vaccinations. 
As Christians, we know the truth, and we're called to live according to that truth. We need to do everything we can do within reason to preserve life. But we must do everything we can to fight for the freedom to provide for our families and to gather for worship. Doing these things will always provide the best chance to defeat the enemy, including a disease like COVID. We must fight against the tendency then to demonize others, especially those of the household of faith. Do you understand what I'm saying? That divisiveness that we've talked about. As we enter this second wave or third wave or whatever it is, we need to fight against demonizing those of the household of faith. For us as Christians, COVID is not our main concern. The gospel is our primary consideration. As believers, we know that this world needs the good news of Christ. Needs the good news that Christ has defeated sin and death. Right? Sin, sin and death have been defeated through our Lord. They need that good news, and, and they need to know that they can have eternal life through Him. Beloved, we know as Christians that Christ's return is imminent. He is coming to set up His kingdom here on earth. He's coming. In His coming kingdom, He will destroy sickness and death. And, and in some ways, it's as simple as that. Christ will return, and He will, re, re, he will reign. And life in His kingdom will be infinitely better than life now. Since the beginning of the church, there have been men intent on confusing the truth of God's Word regarding the future. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul responded to a question from the church about those who had died in Christ. It seems that some were grieved that those who had died before Christ's coming may have been lost eternally. He encouraged them that Christ would raise believers from the dead when He comes for the church, that they would be raised first even. In the same manner, in 2 Thessalonians 3, some were teaching that the day of the Lord had already come. Therefore, the church was confused about the future, they were confused about God's plan, and that confusion led some in the church to act as busybodies and to lead undisciplined lives. Now, these situations highlight the necessity to study what God's Word has to say about future events. As such, we've been spending four weeks to study the kingdom of God as a theme through Scripture. I want Grace Bible Church, I want this church to be confident, to be confident in the Lord's plans for us, and for this world. And when we're informed and confident, we will be bold and courageous in our Christian walk, correct? If we know what Christ's plan is, we can confidently walk knowing what He's going to do. We will be able to boldly preach, that is, the gospel to the lost. My hope is that your knowledge of the kingdom will motivate you to faithful service now as we face opposition. Increasing opposition, might I add. Increasing opposition from Satan in this world. With that, let's dive back into this study on the kingdom of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Lord, we thank you this morning again. I do pray for the preaching of your word this morning. Pray that you would superintend this with your Holy Spirit, that you would be with me, the preacher, as I preach your word, that I would preach in your authority, that I would truly decrease as you increase, that your word would not return void. Father, I pray for those who are listening, that they would lis listen with ears that have been, and hearts that have been prepared by the Holy Spirit. We thank you and praise you this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Turn to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, just to set the stage, records Peter and John healing a lame man at the gate of the temple. And in verse 12, in verse 12, Peter stands up and preaches a sermon. So let's read this sermon, starting in verse 12. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? 
And why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. But put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man, whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him, which has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he is thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from the ancient times. Moses said, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed and to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not take heed, does not heed that prophet, shall be utterly destroyed from among, among his people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days, It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, In your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But for you, first, God raised up his ser servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from his wicked ways. Now through, or through these past few weeks, three weeks ago we started this series by looking at, the, at God's kingdom plan throughout Scripture. In the first sermon of this series, we established that the kingdom of God is the grand theme of Scripture. In the words of Bill Barrick, he says, Our sovereign Lord's plan for His kingdom dominates history from, from the first cre creation to the new creation. His kingdom program will be fulfilled. He has not altered His plan. There is no plan B. End quote. In our second sermon, we looked at the kingdom of God from the view of the Old Testament. From Cain and Abel to Noah and the flood, from the Tower of Babel to the time of Abraham, from Israel's time in Egypt to, to the Exodus under Moses, from the judges to the kings, including David, to the prophets, throughout the Old Testament we found an unfolding story that had astounding consistency. Astounding consistency. In the third sermon, we established that the New Testament kingdom message matched the message preached by the Old Testament prophets. We saw the proclamation of the coming king. In, in that, we studied the message of six early proclaimers of that king, of the Lord Jesus. We showed that the, the saints living at the time of Jesus' birth were still looking for the kingdom of God. They were still looking for the kingdom of God that is to be restored to Israel. The angel Gabriel, was sent from God to announce to Mary that her baby would sit on the throne of David, proving that Jesus was, was the son of David who would fulfill the Davidic covenant. He also, he also said that this baby would rule over the house of, a, of Jacob, that is Israel, forever. This is a, the angel Gabriel from the throne of God making that pronouncement. Mary proclaimed that God had sent help to Israel, his servant, as he promised to Abraham and his descendants. This showed that, that God would fulfill the Abrahamic covenant with his people just as he had promised. And John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, proclaimed that God had raised up a horn of salvation in the house of David. He also proclaimed that God had remembered his covenant with Abraham. The Magi traveled long distances to look for the one who had been born king of the Jews. And when they came to, to Jerusalem, King Herod was greatly covered troubled, and he consulted the Jewish leaders. They consulted the prophets to find out where the Messiah was to be born, and they quoted Micah 5, 2, which says, a ruler would rise out of Judah to shepherd his God's, God's people, Israel. 
Simeon and Anna also connected this baby, the baby Jesus, with the redemption of Israel and Jerusalem. And so, so you have a, a tremendously consistent message that came from the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets, and was believed on by these, these believers at the time of Jesus' birth. Now, after these events, there was a lull as John and Jesus came to age, and then we saw uh, the precursor of the coming king. The precursor of the coming king. John the Baptist was that precursor. He based his ministry on the message that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And and announcing the coming Messiah, he preached Isaiah 40, which clearly prophesied that God would restore the nation of Israel. In that prophecy in Isaiah 40, God declared that he has the power to bring these things to pass. He, He alone can do these things. If you remember, but I challenged us. How big is our God? How big is our God? Then we saw the the presentation of the Christ King. As John carried on his ministry, Jesus presented himself to be baptized by John. That act of baptism publicly identified Jesus with John's ministry. Again, John being the precursor of the King. After the baptism, Jesus would lead into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. In In the final temptation... Satan tempted Jesus with his worldly kingdoms. This further reveals the cosmic battle between Satan and God. After the temptations, Jesus began to preach the same exact message as John. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now we also saw the prescription of the the Christ king, or the rejection, that is, of the Christ king. In Matthew 5, Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. In it, he revealed the righteous requirements for entry into his coming kingdom. He also attacked the hypocrisy of the existing earthly kingdom of the Jewish leaders. He also began to teach his disciples what life will be like as they awaited the coming kingdom in the time between his two comings. After this, Jesus, after the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus began to perform miracles, which gave glimpses of the coming kingdom. And it showed that Jesus had truly, truly had the authority of the Son of David. Ultimately, the leaders of Israel rejected Jesus as their Messiah. This rejection made clear, was made clear when the Jewish leaders attributed Jesus' miracle not to the Holy Spirit, but to the power of Satan. Their rejection culminated as Jesus presented himself, king of Israel, at his entry into Jerusalem before his, before his crucifixion. At that, very, at that very time, the leaders were continued to plot how they could rid themselves of him because they didn't want his kingdom. They wanted their own kingdom. They wanted their own comforts. As the leaders continued to deny him, Jesus began to make clear that, it would be, that he would come twice. At his first coming, he would go to the cross and to the grave and would be resurrected from the dead. He would also ascend to the eternal throne of the Father in victory over sin and death and his enemies. And at his, at his ascension, Jesus received all the authority in heaven and earth. It says that in Matthew 28. Now in the words of Peter from Acts 3, he would wait there until the period of restoration, the restoration of all things. We, we saw that earlier when we read through Acts chapter 3. Then we saw the proclamation of the Christ King. According to Matthew 16, Jesus would build His church during this time. We call it the church age between the first and second comings. According to Matthew 28, the purpose of the church is to make disciples of the nations by proclaiming the message of the victory. That is the gospel. Now, during this series, I've argued that there is continuity in the message from Genesis to Revelation. The message of the kingdom has remained the same throughout the Old Testament and the Gospels and through the New Testament. Now, this morning, I want to give you at least four reasons from the New Testament to believe that God will, in fact, restore the kingdom to Israel and that Israel will be a light to the the nations as promised in the Old Testament. So let's look at the first reason. Peter still presented the kingdom to Israel, Acts Acts chapter 2 and 3. Now last week, we left left off in Acts chapter 1, where the disciples were asking if it is now at that time that the kingdom would be restored to Israel. Now, if you'll turn to Acts chapter 1, 
it should be in Acts 3, so if you just turn over a couple pages. I want to point out in, in chapter 1, verse 3, that Luke makes the following point. He, he says this, To the apostles he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Speaking of things concerning the kingdom of God. So for 40 days, Jesus spoke to the, the apostles of the things concerning the kingdom. Now, I think we can assume, I'm fairly certain we can assume, that Jesus did not contradict the prophets or anything in the Gospels. As a matter of fact, I'm certain we can assume that he reinforced those things that the prophets had taught and prophesied. Now, at the end of the 40 days, Luke records one question they had for the Lord. Are you restoring the kingdom of Israel now? So, so they had just been taught for 40 days, and now they're asking, is it time now? In response, Jesus says, they can't know the timing of its coming. So instead of focusing on the timing, according to Acts 1.8, they were to receive the Holy Spirit, and then they were to take the news of the coming kingdom to the nations throughout the world. That's the point, is that now the message is going to the nations through the apostles, through the apostles' teaching, through the church. And as amazing as it sounds, though, even after this, Peter and the apostles still presented the kingdom to Israel. After the upper room experience where they, where they received the Holy Spirit, Peter took his stand to preach to the men of Judea. Acts 2 records that sermon in which he quotes Joel 2, 28-32. In that text, the prophet Joel prophesied the restoration of God's people. So when, when Peter applied the prophet's words to what happened on the day of Pentecost, and I don't have time to, to fully unpack this, but what Peter is doing is he's clearly articulating that the birth of the church at Pentecost starts the process of God's redeeming the world, the nations. And this will ultimately culminate in the restoration of the kingdom to Israel at the end of the church age. But we can't miss the fact that the nations are involved with this. He also, Peter also shows in, in Acts 2, he also shows that Jesus is the Messiah and, and that has ascended to the throne in heaven, fulfilling Psalm 110.1. He is currently, we've talked about it quite a bit, he is currently ruling from the Father's throne. We saw that in Acts chapter 3. Peter was careful, though, not to say that Psalm 110.2, Verse 2 had been fulfilled. In that scripture, in that prophecy, David says the Lord will rule from Zion. Meaning that he's ruling from the eternal throne, but he's not ruling from Zion. So that scripture, according to Peter, has not been fulfilled. One day he will rule from Zion as the ultimate earthly king. Now in the opening, we read Peter's second sermon from Acts 3. Turn over there real quick. In Acts 3, 18-20, I want to really focus on those verses. Verse 18, But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, He is thus fulfilled. So Peter is saying that the prophets witnessed, prophesied, that is, to the sufferings of the Messiah. As an example... Isaiah extensively prophesied that the Messiah would suffer for his people. We see that in Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. Now look at verse 19. Therefore, now remember who he's preaching to, who he's talking to. He's, he's, he's preaching to the people of Israel, men of Israel specifically, according to verse 12. Men of Israel. And so look at verse 19. He says, therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. See, Peter's promising Israel that if they repent and return, there will be a time of refreshing. You see, he makes a very real offer. A very real offer. That if Israel would repent 
their repentance would usher in a time of refreshing in the presence of Christ. In the words of James Montgomery Boyce, the times of refreshing probably concerns a future day of blessing. When, when the Jewish people will turn to Christ in large numbers and a, and a final age of national blessing will come. Peter reinforces this offer in verse 20. And that he may send Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, appointed for you. Now again, we need to remember that Peter is addressing the men of Israel. In other words, Jesus was appointed as Israel's Messiah. He was appointed for them. Now look at verse 21. Whom heaven, that is this, the Christ, the Messiah, whom heaven must receive until a period, the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke about, spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. See, church, we're living right now in this period that Peter is describing in verse 21. When Jesus ascended, he went to be with the Father. He went to, to be at the right hand of the Father, and he is there awaiting the time when he will come again to establish his kingdom. Now look at verse 24. And likewise, all the prophets have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your father, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Very important. Very important. And then he goes on to say, verse 26, But for you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. See, here in Acts 3, which occurs, by the way, after Pentecost, Peter is still preaching that God will be faithful to his promises to Abraham and to David. Nothing has changed. It's the same plan. In fulfilling his promise to Abraham, now get this, in fulfilling his promise to Abraham, Peter again reminds them that all the families of the earth will be blessed. So we see the nations involved with this. Therefore, therefore, Israel's repentance and restoration will usher in a time of refreshing. There will be a period of great blessing for Israel and all the nations. Now, I believe that Zechariah spoke of this time in Zechariah 12.10. He says, I will pour out, this is Zechariah 12.10, I will pour out in the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, so that... They will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Church, brethren, it is hard to avoid that through Peter, God was making a very real offer to Israel. I believe, I believe this offer still stands. And that one day Israel will repent and return. They will look on the one whom they have pierced. They will mourn over their sin. And according to Peter, their repentance and the realization that Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, will usher in times of refreshing. I would argue that this will be a time of worldwide blessing for Israel and the nations. And the nations. Let's look at the second of at least four reasons from the New Testament to believe that God will restore the kingdom to Israel and they will be a light to the nations. Paul still preached the kingdom to the Jewish leaders. Paul still preached the kingdom to the Jewish leaders. Now, it's a well-known fact that Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. He, from God's perspective, was the perfect candidate for this ministry. But from a human standpoint, he was the last person you would choose for a mission to the nations. In his own words, in Philippians 3, 6, <clears throat> he was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Yet God sent him to the Gentiles. In Ephesians 3.8, he described his ministries ministry to the gentiles in this way he says this to me the very least of all saints this grace was given to preach 
to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Clearly, Christ had sent Paul to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Yet, yet, we should recognize that Jesus not only commissioned Paul to go to the Gentiles, but also to the Jews. Just listen to Acts 9.15. This is where the road to Damascus, and speaking, God is speaking to Ananias. Uh, but the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he, Saul, or Paul, is a chosen instrument, uh, instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles. We got that. Pretty clear. And kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So from the outset of Paul's ministry, he was sent to bear the name of Christ to the Gentiles and to the sons of Israel. Now in Acts 19, Paul, Paul went to Ephesus to start the church there. In 19.8, we see an example of Paul's ministry to the Jews. In 19.8 it says, And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about what? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. So Paul established a practice of preaching in the synagogues when he entered a city. And, and, he, and he explains this in Romans 1.16. He says, he says to the church at Rome, in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. See, Paul understood that God chose Israel to be his witness nation. They were to be a light to the nations, according to Isaiah 42.6. They were to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, according to Exodus 19.6. The Apostle Paul recognized that these things had not changed. Turn over to Acts 26. In Acts 26, Paul stood before King Agrippa to make his defense. And 26, 2-4, he began to explain to Agrippa why the, the Jews were accusing him. He recounted his former life as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of Jewish religion. And in 26, 6, in 26, 6 he says this, I am, And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise which to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by the Jews. In other words, Paul stood accused of preaching the same message which the fathers preached, the same message which the prophets preached. According to Paul, sadly, the Jews were rejecting the, these promises which they actually hoped to obtain. They were rejecting them but they hoped to attain them. And Paul understood that. The message hadn't changed. In the words of Michael Block, he says, Paul's message has roots back to the patriarchs of Israel and what God revealed to them. The promise God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the same promise Paul is proclaiming. There is not, there is not indication that this promise has been transcended or spiritualized or redefined into something different. This is a literal hope to Israel as found in the Abrahamic covenant and given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, end quote. I want you to notice in verse 7 that Paul referred to the 12 tribes of Israel. As such, Paul's message is relevant to the 12 tribes, the 12 ethnic tribes of Israel. Clearly, the gospel is truly a message of hope to Israel as well as church. Look at chapter six verses or twenty six verses twenty two and twenty three. So having help obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. Here Paul reiterates his message matches the, the prophets and with Moses. <coughs> Look at verse twenty three. That the that the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. 
Now I want you to notice, I want you to be clear that Paul has both the Jewish people and the Gentiles in view. Both will be included in Christ's future kingdom. Now turn to Acts 28. In 28.16, Paul entered, the, entered Rome to stand before Caesar. In 28.17-22, he explained why he had come to Rome to the leading men of the Jews in that city. Now look at verse 20. Look at verse 20. Remember, remember who he's speaking to. He says, For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you, for I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. Now, don't miss the significance there. This is Acts 28. Luke recorded in Acts 28 the events of Paul's first Roman imprisonment. I think it's around A.D. 60 or 62, somewhere in that area. And at that time, after Peter or Paul, that is, had spent several years preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, he's now arrived at, at Rome, and he's saying he is imprisoned for what? For the hope of Israel. In other words, he wanted these men to know that Israel was not finished. They actually still had hope. And in 28-22, these Jews agreed to hear more from Paul. And, and look at verse 23. When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. And he was explaining to them, solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. Again, it's the same message. He's preaching, or he's teaching, he's testifying, that is, uh, to these men and, uh, these Jews, and he's trying to persuade them concerning Jesus as the Messiah from both the law of Moses and the prophets. Even at this late stage, Paul continued to preach the message of the law and prophets, the message of the kingdom, which had not changed. Even at this point in the life of the church, Paul was still presenting the kingdom to the Jews. Look at, look at chapter 28, verses 30 and 31. <clears throat> and he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him. What was he doing? Preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. Now, I think it's incredibly noteworthy that Luke wrote the gospel of Luke in Acts. Even more significantly, Luke was a Gentile. Now, one would think that if there would, was any change in the message, that he would have clearly articulated that. He would, have, he would have told us about this change. He would have highlighted that the promises were no longer applied to ethnic Israel, but from the beginning of Luke, we saw earlier in an earlier sermon, all the way to Acts chapter 1, all the way to Acts chapter 28, it is the same message. Nothing's changed. Peter didn't change the message. Paul didn't change the message. Now let's look at the third of at least four reasons from the New Testament to believe that God will restore the kingdom to Israel and they will be a light to the nations. The church still practices the kingdom ethic. And this is from the epistles in Revelation. Throughout this series, we've emphasized again the continuity of the message of the kingdom of God. From beginning to end, we have seen God's kingdom plan unfold. We have shown that the prophets anticipated the kingdom promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They also looked forward to Jesus' reign on the throne of David in Jerusalem as promised by 2 Samuel 7. We studied the Abrahamic covenant, which promised Abraham land, seed, and blessing. We saw the Davidic covenant, which promised that the son of David would sit on the throne forever. We saw the new covenant, and we found we found that these three covenants are unconditional in nature. We also learned that each of these covenants applied to Israel. We looked at the expectation of those living at the time of Jesus' birth. We, we saw that they clearly anticipated that the Messiah would bring hope to Israel. It would be in Christ Jesus that God would keep His promises to Israel and the Gentile nations. 
We studied Jesus' ministry starting with the temptations which culminated in Satan offering his earthly kingdom to Jesus. We, saw, we showed that Jesus preached the kingdom ethic starting with his Sermon on the Mount. And after his death and resurrection, he taught his disciples regarding the kingdom of God. After that, he sent his apostles to take the kingdom message to the ends of the earth. Their ministry, their ministry continues to this day through us, the church. Now, we don't have time to fully study this, but the epistles through Revelation 2 teach the church how it should conduct itself in this age as we await the inauguration of the kingdom of God. In Matthew 28, 19, and 20, and in Acts 1, 8, Jesus gave us our mission. We are to take the gospel unto the nations to make disciples. As such, the rest of the New Testament teaches us how we are to conduct ourselves in the church as we endeavor to complete this mission. In the words of Michael Block, Christians are positionally related to the king and his kingdom. They are to exhibit kingdom righteousness in their lives. Yet the kingdom and the reign of Jesus the Messiah await the future. We are looking forward to that future. And we're living according to the kingdom now. Now none of this means that God's promises to Israel are null and void. Quite the opposite. We need to recognize that God's promises to us are realized through Israel. Get that. Turn to Romans 11.1. 1. Paul writing. Paul says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Clearly Paul is saying that God has not rejected his people. God's promises to Abraham, God's promises to to Jacob, God's promises to David, they're at stake here. Now look at 11.11. Romans 11.11. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. In other words, Paul is saying Israel's rejection of their Messiah... Jesus has not halted God's plans and has certainly not changed His plans. Right now, in this age, in the church age, He is using their rejection to bless the world through the church. But Paul doesn't stop there. Look at verse 15. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world... What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Paul anticipates a time when Israel will accept Jesus as their Messiah. This will mean life from the dead. And the words of, again, in the words of Michael Block, life from the dead is kingdom blessings and probably includes the glorification of the creation discussed in Romans 8. Salvific blessings in this age will be followed by a holistic restoration of creation. The point is that blessings now lead to much greater blessings to come. If God can use Israel in their current unbelief to bring world blessings, what greater blessings will follow when Israel believes? Now there's much more we could say about the future kingdom. We've shown that God's that, that entrance into God's future kingdom is based on a spiritual relationship with Him. We need to be very careful. Neither Jew nor Gentile will enter the kingdom of God without a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet, this kingdom of God will be a physical kingdom with both spiritual and physical blessings. Right now, we live in this age 
in a fallen world which is currently under the power of Satan. During this time, we are commanded not to be friends with the world, but to live as kingdom citizens. We are messengers of the kingdom during this age. We are to take the gospel of the kingdom of God and go preach it. Again, Block puts it this way. The kingdom of God is the great and grand theme of Scripture. The believer in Jesus can know the kingdom is not a spiritual escape to a cloud in the sky, but a transformed planet earth where nations serve our great God and King Jesus. Having a proper view of the kingdom gives the believer a clearer understanding of God's purposes for this planet and a real hope for a wonderful future. When one contemplates the kingdom, how can we not help but be excited for its coming? How can it not affect how we live our lives? How can we not be motivated to share Jesus with those who do not know Him? May the prayer of God's people be exactly what Jesus taught. Pray then in this way. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, in just a few moments, we're going to enter time of observing the Lord's table. And I want you to consider, before we do that, a fourth reason to believe God will restore the kingdom to Israel and that they will be a light to the nations. Jesus still promises the kingdom to come. If you turn to Luke 22. This is just before Jesus was arrested. He's observing the Passover with his apostles. And in 22.14, it says, When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the, the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Look at verse 16. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, if we apply what we've learned in the last four sermons about the kingdom of God, we realize that Christ is promising that he will eat the Passover in the kingdom. I believe Isaiah spoke of this great banquet in, on the holy mountain in Isaiah 25. If that is the case, this banquet will be for all the people. It says very clearly in Isaiah 25. And Jesus speaks of a physical kingdom which he will inaugurate at his second coming. We, but we can never forget we can never forget the spiritual aspects of this kingdom. Only the righteous will enter. Therefore, Jesus came to die on a cross. He came to die for the sins of the unrighteous. He came to take upon Himself our sins so that we could be reconciled to God. Look at verse 17. And when He had taken the cup and given thanks, He said, Take this. And share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. Jesus reiterates that in the coming kingdom, he will do this again. But we see here that that kingdom is yet still future. At his second coming, when he comes again. Look at verse 19. And when he had taken some bread... And given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. See, we, we observe communion as a church, remembering him, remembering what he accomplished. Observing the Lord's table, taking the elements, shows that we trust that he will return and that he will establish his kingdom just as he promised. We remember what he accomplished in giving, giving his body on the cross. Look at verse 20. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is, which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Here we see the connection with the new covenant that, which has been inaugurated by his blood poured out at the cross. Two weeks ago, we found that the new covenant will be made with a new covenant we made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. As Gentiles, 
We have been blessed to participate in the new covenant through Christ's sacrifice. And we will also be blessed, if you're in Christ, to participate in the kingdom of God when He he returns. Now, as we prepare our hearts to observe the Lord's table, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 11. As you do so, I want to remind you that if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you believe that He truly went to the cross as a sacrifice for your sins, that He shed His blood so that you may be covered, that He has redeemed you from sin, from that slave market of sin, we welcome you to partake. But in doing so, we ask that you take some time. I'm going to give you some, a few moments to take time to meditate, to confess your sin. 1 John 1, 9, John says, If you confess your sin, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We also ask you to meditate on what Christ has done what he's accomplished. Paul says, For by grace you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Christ has accomplished salvation for you. It's nothing that, it's not as a result of works, nothing that we can do. As you consider, as you consider these things, I want you to think through and consider the kingdom of God. Think about the life that we live here now and that Christ has promised that we will reign with him in the kingdom. So I want you to take a few moments. In just a moment, Phil's going to lead us in a song and then we'll partake the elements.